Welcome, everyone. We're glad you've chosen to join us and take the time to go through God's Word with us at FX Church, Foot of the Cross um, Church this morning. We've been going through our series in 1 John called So That, and that's a phrase that uh, John, the Apostle John, who God asked to write these words to us, God's people, the church, um, those are the words that he uses over and over. God has John write these things, and this says, I'm writing this so that, and then he does a follow-up so that we understand. And, and you know, we, again, as we've said each week, we, we are living in a time of incredible uncertainty. It seems like there's very limited, trustworthy information, which we're going to really look at today. And Few people seem to be truly seeking God and His Word for answers. The church is a mess, and you don't know who or what to believe. This is the same context that God has John write this letter. And God has John write this letter so that we can know God's truths, so that we can show love for His commands, and so that we can grow in His love. And then he says right at the beginning of his letter, so that our joy may be complete. You see, a lot of people are trying to convince us of a lot of so that's. They're telling us that here's the reason that I'm giving, and here's all the facts and the information and the charts. Now, here's the so that I want you to do. And we said this last week, but the best so that's that that trap us, the best lies are the ones that contain a lot of truth. It sounds really slick. It sounds really good. It sounds really well put together, but it only gives us part of the truth, like the part we want to hear, not the whole paradox. And you see, God's a God that constantly puts us in paradox in our world, the paradox between eternity and earth, that we live in this in-between, that if we are Christians, if we have accepted Jesus Christ to come into our lives, to begin to change us, to give us a new life that begins to change us, but we don't have that full life yet, The Bible says until Jesus comes back and brings a new earth and a new body and a new life. See, we're in this tension, this paradox, and the Bible really lays out that paradox well and presents those paradoxes, and that's exactly what John does. And over the last several weeks, we've seen that that John is writing so that we might have our joy complete in God. And that even in the mess of the world that we're in, that we'd be able to find a joy, a meaning, a purpose in life that regardless of what we go through, we understand we're going through it and the purpose of it because of what God is doing for eternity, which makes it worth it now. And over the last several weeks, 1 John, when it starts out, starts with what was from the beginning, that we have to go back to the beginning of how we ended up where we are. And until we're willing to do that, it's really difficult to to make a change, to make a difference so that. We have to acknowledge what was first so that we can make a change. And so he says that in verse 1 of John 1.1, and then he goes on to say in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. And John's saying we, as in the leaders of the church at this time, so that you may have fellowship along with us, so that we could be together. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And there, John, remember, is using Old Testament language. He's saying with Abba, with, with, with Yahweh, who is Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, is exactly what John would be saying. He's painting this picture of the Old Testament God. And then in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, We're writing these things so that 
our joy may be complete so that we might have a complete joy in who God is and the fellowship that we have in this earth and the opportunity we have to tell other people about him before he comes back and it's too late. In 2.1, he says, so that you may not sin. He says, I'm writing this because I don't want you to continue to sin and hurt God's heart and hurt one another. And in 2.19, he says, so that it might be made clear that I want to bring clarity. In three, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, so that he might take away sins. I want you to see the clarity and I want you to see that that what God did in Jesus was he came to take care of our sin problem, the thing we couldn't take care of, the judgment we deserved, that Jesus took our place. He came down from the judge's bench, took our place behind the defendant table when we were declared guilty. He puts the robe on us and he says, now you do that for the next person. You tell them, you you surrender your life to tell others that they can be forgiven to be set free. And then he goes on in 4.9 to say, so that we might live through him, that once you understand your sins are forgiven, he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be able to live through him differently in this world. And then he says, so that last week, so that we can have confidence in the day of judgment and so that we might know that we can have confidence that in the midst of judgment, in the midst of a mess, when things just seem like, man, God's angry, that things are coming down, that we can have a confidence, not because of how good we are or how righteous we are or how what we've done, but because of what He has promised from the beginning, what He did in His Son and what we have trusted in and that we continue by faith to look forward is going to happen one day. And he says, man, I want you to know this, John says. And so this week, we jump into the next part. And today's message is entitled, So That We May Know the True One. So That We May Know the True One. Listen, there are a lot of false ones out there today. We live in a culture that are tearing one another down and, and we don't know what to believe and we're all sinners. And so it's like, who do I trust? Because I know that guy's not perfect or that gal's not perfect. And well, he's an expert, but I don't know his motives or wow, they're not an expert, but their motives are so pure. And we struggle to know who is the true one. Who am I supposed to listen to? Who am I supposed to trust? And John finishes his letter saying, I've written this letter to start out with joy and end with a confidence to know what's true about the world. And if we'll know our Bible, if we'll know our God through the Bible, we'll have clarity on what this world's really about. And so John is wrapping up his letter. We wrap up our last message in the book of 1 John so that we may know the true one, especially during this time. In 1 John 4, last week, we looked at the fact that he said that this, in this, love is perfected with us so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. For as we are, he is in this world. If there's that paradox. And then he says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. God has discipline, but he's not looking to punish. He's looking to discipline, to help us to become the right kind of people. Then he says, so the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. 
Now, in 1 John 5, we pick up the story again in John's letter in verse 14. And there in 1 John 4, he talks about the confidence we may have. Now, he picks that theme back up in the fifth chapter in verse 14. And he says, now, this is the confidence we have before him. Now, listen, if you know anything about the Bible, and you may be tuning in, dropping into this podcast, you may have never read the Bible. Someone may have suggested this podcast to you. You may be listening and not know anything. But trust me, if you read through the scripture, the response that you see when people come before him, before God in the scriptures is not one of confidence. It's one of panic. That people fall as dead men. That they are scared for their lives because of the authority and the power and the light that God shines on their life and they realize that they are undone, that all their faults, all their sins, all the ways they've tried to measure up don't measure up. And the Bible says that every time someone has an encounter with God, they fall as dead men. And here, John is wrapping up his letter and he said, based on everything that I've written, I'm telling you right now that if you know these things, if you know who God is, if you know who Jesus is and what he has done and the power that he's given us and the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if you understand the family of God, both in the Trinity and the church itself, then there is a confidence that you can have to stand before God. And then look what he says in verse 14. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Can I just tell you how mind-blowing that is? That God says that anything we ask according to his will, he hears us. Now, can we ask things not according to his will? Of course you can. So then the question then becomes, well, how do I ask or pray or make sure that my heart is in the center of God's will? You know, the overwhelming majority of what you and I do every day What you and I do every day, the majority of it comes from a place of simple habit. We don't even think about how we respond or what we do. It's just instinct. And you know, if you were trained the right way militarily, athletically, academically, and you've done it in a way that's correct and rigorous, what the purpose of those disciplines, those are called disciplines, the purpose of those disciplines is that it develops in you an automatic response that you don't have to pause and think because that's costly, that you have an automatic reaction. God says in his word, that's exactly what happens and how we get this confidence. Romans 12.1 says it this way, when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, Paul writes this in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's saying by the mercies, that God has mercy on us. If you understand God's mercy, his love, how much you deserve to be done away with because of your sin, but how merciful God is to humanity and to the earth. It says, I urge you. Paul's saying, please listen. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on in verse two and he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. 
So Paul says there's this process that we have to go through where we recognize that, that our judgment, we recognize that we deserve to be judged, that we're in trouble, and then we throw ourselves at the recognition that there is a merciful God who doesn't give us what we deserve, but he's merciful to us. Then once you realize that, you have a decision to make. Do I try to earn that God's favor? Do I say, man, you're so merciful. I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to do as much as I can and be as merciful as I can. No, the Bible says our response is to just present ourselves. Like 1 John 14 says that we come before him. We repent. We present ourselves and we say, I'm a living sacrifice. And you know, the problem with a living sacrifice, if you know the sacrifices of the Old Testament in the olden days, they would burn sacrifices, is when it gets hot, you can crawl off the altar. And instead, we're a living sacrifice. We say, you know, we know it's worth it to go through this process of dying in this life because we understand that in the dying, there's living. There's, there's, There's new life coming in that as I put off the old, the new begins to take over. The Bible says that we become a new creation in Christ, that once we come to know him, that we become a new thing and become transformed. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And so what Paul's writing here and what John's trying to get us to understand is that once you begin to understand that we are a living sacrifice and our goal is to be holy before God, it's to please Him because we just are so grateful for the relationship that it's worth laying down our lives. See, that's the picture of what Jesus did. Jesus was so grateful for the relationship that he had with the Heavenly Father that he paid the price because he wanted us to have that same relationship that was broken. And then he says, this is your spiritual worship. You know, we love big worship services, right? In our day, we love these big shows and we love this big display. And wow, that was great worship. People even say that. Paul would say great worship is someone who's a living sacrifice, who desires to live a holy and pleasing life before God and say, God, I'm yours, whatever you want. Not someone that can put on a good show. That's not what spiritual worship, spiritual worship isn't a feeling. It's not this feeling of, oh, this is wonderful and it's so great. Spiritual worship is this idea of going through this process of recognizing my sin, a merciful God, presenting myself before Him, desiring to be holy and pleasing, and then to do it day after day, to get back on the altar, because sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered day after day. In Hebrews, it says Christ is interceding on our behalf continually. He's offering himself. He's saying, look, I'm still offering myself until I come back and make the final judgment. I'm still offering myself to humanity. And that's exactly what Paul says. And he says, we have to be transformed. He says, do not be conformed to this age. See, it's easy to be conformed. It's easy to believe the lies. And instead of knowing the true one, we start to get a little tribe that we make and we decide the ones we're going to believe and trust in and not actually know what's really true, but we get our own personal truth. It's kind of like what's, what's true for me may not be true for you. That's not biblical. God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to me, Jesus says, unless, unless you go through me. Like no one gets to the Father unless you go through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Does that mean that the Bible contains all the truth that we could ever know? No, because God says that the heavens even declare His glory. 
His glory and His truths. That scientists, if they'll study with a view of God and a view of His vastness and a view of His creation, that they can worship through that study and through understanding that. And that's what scientists of old used to do. And so Paul goes on and he says, there's a renewing of your mind that has to happen. You have to discipline like an athlete, like a military person. There's a new disciplining of the mind that starts through this process of having this confidence that if I have the Son of God, I have the life. John said in the chapter before this, he who has the Son of God has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, that's what he just wrote. And then he gets here and he says, you've got some confidence in that and you need to come before him. We're not supposed to stay away from him. And well, I'm just going to try real hard and hopefully he's happy. We're supposed to like throw ourselves the living sacrifice to come before him and say, I need you again. And I, I trust you and I come before you. Now, what do you want me to do? And we, and that process over time begins to transform and renew our minds so that our instincts begin to change, our habits begin to change, that it's no longer hard to crawl up on the altar. It's the natural thing we do because it's the natural response like a military person or a sports person or any an academic person would just know the formula because it's been memorized. It's automatic. They discipline themselves for it. And it, they didn't discipline themselves the people that just discipline themselves because they're trying to get something, I just want to make big money in the NBA, those people normally don't make it long. you got to have a love for the game, a love for the fight if you're a military person. You have to have a, a love for academia and for what you're studying. And that's what God says. If you have a love for me, you're going to have this heart to want to be renewed in your mind because once your mind starts to be renewed, your body follows. And that's why he says, then you'll be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now your body's going to do God's will. Your mouth is going to speak God's will so that your prayers are no longer just, well, I hope and I think, and I'm just letting you know what I think versus saying, no, God, I want to go to your word. I want to know your word so that I want to tell you what you think. And if I'm confused, ask you, hey, God, what do you think about this? I don't want to make demands on you. I want to pray what you want because you're holy, you're merciful, you're good. See, that's a whole different way to think. Even James says the reason that we ask and we don't receive is because we ask with the wrong motives to spend it on selfish desires. That even good things we can often ask for, not because we really want to worship God and surrender to Him, because we just want Him to fix our problems so that we can get on with our life and get what we want. And God says, I'm not willing to do that because I, that thing that you want is an idol, which we'll see in a minute, that, that I can't have in place of me because you'll never be fully full of joy. You'll never be complete. You'll never have confidence, true confidence. You know, there are a lot of people who walk around looking very confident in our world today. Can I just tell you that when people come to the end of their life, and I talk to a an older woman today who told me that she has lost her husband and her daughter in the last year. And when you come to the end of your life and you are a confident person and you realize that what stares you in the face is nothing, is death, that is, there's a panic about that, that, that your confidence kind of just goes away. And so you need to know that there's a confidence on the other side, that this life isn't all there is 
but this life is here. It's what you have to live, and God wants to empower us to live it in a way that is good, pleasing, and perfect to him, for Him so that others might see Him. He goes on in verse 15 of 1 John 5 and says, And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask from Him. Now, here's the key to this. Let me say it again. And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, so He's hearing what we ask, then we know that we have what we ask from Him, what we've asked from Him. Here's the crazy thing, though, about God's will. We can know that God will always accomplish His will, but we don't get to tell God how He will do it, when He will do it, or where He will do it. God gets to make that decision. We can remind him of what he said in his word. We can say, God, you said this would happen, but we don't get to make demands on God when. He says he will do it. But a lot of the promises that we pray for, for example, if you pray for healing and say, God, I really, I I believe, I have no doubt, I, I know you can heal me, and he doesn't heal you, does that mean that wasn't his will? No. The Bible says you will be healed. You will be healed in heaven when you're out of this body, and then you're going to be given a body that will never, ever get sick again. So God has said, yes, I will do that. But he didn't tell you how, when, or where he would do it. See, that's the thing. He, he, he might do it now. He might heal you now. He may wait years to heal you. He may heal you of one disease and then you get another one because we live in a broken world. But ultimately, we can know that in Him, on a new earth, in a new body, we will have every yes we ever asked for. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 1.20. Again, Paul is writing a, a letter to the Corinthian church. And he says to them, for every one of God's promises, that's going back to the beginning that John says in the, in the beginning of his letter, all the promises that God has had over scripture, every one of God's promises is yes in him, in Christ. That in Christ, when Christ came and he finished the work of God, every promise was fulfilled, but fully, but not all yet. So it's already fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled yet. Already, but not yet. So Paul's saying, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, the amen. What amen means, it's a way to give praise to God. And it means, so be it, or it is true. When you say the word amen to a prayer, you are agreeing that what that person prayed, what they said is absolutely true, which is why we need to be careful with our amens. That's why Jesus said, be careful, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything beyond that, Jesus said, is of the evil one. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything beyond that is of the evil one. So again, if you gave your yes to something and then you didn't do it, well, then now you have to repent of not giving your yes, which means it was sin. It was of the evil one. You didn't complete If you gave your yes and shouldn't have, you have to repent. If you said no when you should have said yes, you have to go back to the beginning and recognize that and go, man, I've been of the evil one. You can't just say, oh, well, it didn't work out. No, no, no. It's yes and no. And so he says that every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. And then he says, therefore, the amen is also spoken through Christ for us, for God's glory. In other words, it's not for our glory. 
the yes, do this, God, the prayer request, the amen that goes on the end, it's not for us. It's for God's glory for all He's promised and already told us He has done and will do. And then he says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 1, Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And we talked about the anointing um, before in this book of 1 John. And then in verse 22 of 2 Corinthians 1, he says, He has also sealed us and given us His Spirit as a down payment in our hearts. So Paul says, look, God has even sealed us so that we can know that we have what we've asked Him for. And if we've asked for Him, which is the thing we desire, then He'll give it. See, here's our problem. Here's my problem. I want to ask for lesser things. I don't want to ask for the relationship. I want to ask for heaven, but I don't realize that I really don't want heaven. What heaven is, is where God is, right? It's like saying, I want to be in my parents' house. Why? Because you love the house? You idolize the house? It's, it's your favorite place? Or is it because of the people who live there and the memories when you go back to the beginning of what happened there? See, that's what this should be about. So that when we come before him to ask, there's a heart in us of, man, I just want to be with you. That's all that matters. And if I'm with you, I have everything I need. There, what, what could I ask for? But see, on this side of eternity, we recognize there's a distance. And so in that distance and in that paradox, there are moments when we have to go to God and we cry out to him and we say, God, help us. Help me. Help this person. We, we need to know you. We ask for him to intervene knowing that he will someday, that he's going to make himself clear. And so that's why what we pray and how we know God's will is so important. And most of what, what's been taught about prayer in today's culture is selfish desire prayer. It's just, you just tell God what you want and, and leave it to him. Well, how about we really discover what God wants and then ask him for those things. And then when he provides them, give him glory for them. Man, that's a whole different way to think about prayer, but that's how a family should work. It's not everybody in the family asking for, well, they got a car. Well, God, I want a bigger car. I want more than they have. No, it's, God, I, whatever you want me to have, I'll be content with. And whatever you want them to have, I'll celebrate they have. And if it's something they shouldn't have, I'll confront them. And that's why the next part of this goes on. And in verse 16 of 1 John 5, it says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask. So now John's clarifying what some of our primary prayers should be. Our primary prayers should be worship of God, and our primary prayers should be concerned for the brethren, for people, for the people of God. Our primary prayers should be focused on Oh my goodness, I don't want people to hurt one another. I don't want people to sin. I don't want us to be selfish and greedy and be uncaring to one another. And so, man, those are the prayers I want to pray. Those are the things I want to ask God for. And he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask. And God will give life to him. Lord, change their life. We, we don't want them to be destroyed. And then he says, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. He says, there is a sin that brings death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. See, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. You know, this can be a really confusing passage 
remember where we're at. We're supposed to pray in God's will. And the next thing John says is, if you want to see if you're praying God's will, see how much you pray for yourself versus you pray for people to come to Jesus and be holy and not sin. That's a good indicator of where our hearts really are. And are we willing to confront one another and suffer the consequences of that confrontation because we don't want to see people bring death to one another. We want to see life happen. And if we have a confidence from God, then we'll have the confidence to confront because we know we're confronting sin, not just an annoyance that we have with that person. Because we've already went back and said, man, I'm confident in my relationship with God. I've, I've confessed my sin. I've dealt with me. Now I'm looking. Now I can go to that person and confront them. And that's what Matthew 18 talks about. Jesus says, we're to confront one another one-on-one and then get another person to come with us. And then if that doesn't work, we're to involve the, the family, the body of Christ to confront the sin in that person. Not because we're mad, not because they're messing up our life, but because we love that person and we don't want to see more death in their life or more death in the lives of other people. And so this passage, though, asks this question, what is the sin that leads to death? Well, see, what is the sin that does not lead to death is the other side of it. You see, the sin that does not lead to death and damnation is any sin that we commit that by God's grace we're capable of truly confessing and repenting from. You see, there, there is a moment, there is a turning moment when people deny God and, and God says in Scripture there's a moment where they're done. Like they've denied a relationship with Christ. They've denied a relationship with God. They've said, no, I will not surrender to God. I will not be a living sacrifice. I will not surrender to my life. And God says he turns them over. Romans 1 talks about this, that he turns them over. And part of that turning over is hopefully to draw them back. But in this case, there's a moment when people are done. And we know that that moment's death. If someone dies not knowing Christ, then they're done. But in this sense, even John says, there is a sin that brings death, but I'm not saying he should pray about that. In other words, John's saying, I'm not talking about that sin right now. I'm not talking about looking at your brother and saying, well, I'm not confronting them. I'm not talking to them. I'm not going to, 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 to deal with their sin because, you know, they're going to hell anyway, so I don't care. John is saying, don't think that. Don't pray that way. He's like, I'm not saying to pray that way. I'm saying to pray to God, to bring people to repentance, to give life to people. And then in verse 17 of 1 John 5, he says, and we have to recognize that all unrighteousness is sin. Anything that we do that isn't right, anything that we give our yes or our no, and then we don't follow through, it's sin. And then he says, there is a sin that does not bring death. In other words, in the beginning of the book, in 1 John 1, 9, God had John write, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin that does not bring death. In other words, there's sin that, that doesn't bring death. We sin all the time that doesn't cause our damnation. We just keep coming back to him. And the key indicator is, do we keep coming back to him? Or do we finally just embrace death and tell God, I'm done with you? I, don't, I want nothing to do with you. And God says those that are truly his children won't do that. Those that are truly his and truly know him, they'll never do that sin that commits death. 
because they know what life really is. They'll never commit that sin. And so if you're someone who has the son of Jesus or has the son, Jesus Christ, the Bible told us earlier, John said earlier, if you have the son, you have the life. He who does not have the son does not have a life. And if you're still breathing and living, you still have an opportunity to repent. And if this is your moment, like verse 16 says, of confrontation, that there's something in your life, there's sins that you're committing that are bringing you death and you know it, I'm, I'm telling you, man, in this message, I'm asking that God would give life to you, that you'd see there's a way out. You'd see there's a God that says that, that when, when, when one sinner repents, Jesus says, there is a party in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. I don't think that verse, when you look in context, is just talking about people repenting for a one-time born-again salvation. I think Jesus is saying anytime someone is confronted and they humble themselves and they become a living sacrifice again and, and they do what God's will is, which is to confess their sin and to be forgiven, there's a party in heaven that breaks out. Can you imagine what that would look like in our marriages, in our families, if, if we had that kind of relationship where we were willing to confess and repent, we were willing to confront and be confident in our confrontation because of our walk with God and our desire for other people, not a desire for legalism, but a desire to really love people and see them walk with God. Do you see how we may really know the true one if we responded to the true one this way? See, that's what John's getting to because he goes on and he says this in verse 18. Verse John 5, 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now, what is that talking about? Because I'm born of God. I sin. He's not talking about that because if he was talking about that, and that's what he meant here, then what he wrote earlier in the beginning of his book would have been negated because he said, Anyone who confesses will be forgiven. And so he's not talking about anyone who's been born of God does, never sins. What he's saying is someone who's been born of God doesn't continually love sin anymore. They, they hate sin. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not long for sin. They don't, they don't go after sin. And then he says, but the one who is born of God or who is born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. He's saying, but the one who is born of God keeps him. God keeps him. That He keeps God close. They have a close relationship, and the evil one cannot break that relationship. And it drives him nuts because from the beginning, remember, go back to the beginning if we're going to know the true one. In the beginning, in Eden, Satan told them God's not true. He's holding out on you. Did he really say? And here John is saying you can know that instead of being like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who turned their back on God to listen to the serpent, you can turn your back on the serpent and you can listen to God. Because you can say, you know what? I know my God will keep me. He has given me eternal life and the life is in his son and it's not in you. And I'm not running to you. I'm not running to that anymore. I'm going to keep running to the son. And if I fall down and I stumble back and you pull me back, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to run to the son again. I'm going to continue to run to the son, not run to the sin. 
And if I do that, the evil one can't touch me. He can't do anything to me for eternity. He may mess with my life here on this earth, but he ultimately can't get to my soul. He can't get to my new body that's coming when Christ comes back. He can't ruin the promises of God that are for eternity. He can only mess with the things that he can mess with on this side of eternity. The limited authority and permission that he has. And that's why in verse 19, John, God has John write, We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. He says, you know, you've got to know the true one and know that if you know the true one, you can know you're of God, that he loves you, that you're his child, that if you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, that that Jesus has provided the adoption papers for you to be adopted into the family of God when you didn't deserve it. When, when it was going to do nothing but cost God everything for you, but he still chose. Jesus paid the penalty you deserved for your sin, for your mistakes, to say, I'll pay for it, and then I'll give you all the blessings of heaven. Not right this moment. I'll give you my love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. I will pour into you right now already but there's a not yet that's coming. And see, that's what we look forward to, that when we see that the world is in the sway of the evil one, like we do right now, the mess that's in the world, the pain, the suffering, that we can say, you know what? I see it. It's been going on. We've had plagues. We've had wars. We've had earthquakes. We've had problems. We've had death forever as humanity. And I know that the evil one caused that, but I also know that there is a God who is true, and that the world is not conquered, that God conquers the world and conquers the one of it, so that we may know the true one. As John wraps up his letter, as God has him write these last verses, here's what he says in 1 John 5.20. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come. Can I ask you, do you really know that? Do you really believe that Jesus was the Son of of the almighty creator of the universe. That from the beginning of time, there was a family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the reason we have families today and we have male and female and and, and animals breed and reproduce is it is a divine expression of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you know that the Son of God has come? That Jesus is the Messiah. He is Yahweh who saves of the Old Testament, who is the Messiah that was promised all the way back in Genesis at the beginning, and he's promised at the end of Revelation to come again. He is the slain Lamb of God who crawled up on the altar as a living sacrifice, as Romans says, and he is now making intercession for people, holding back his Father's wrath so that we might repent and become more like him and more people might be born again and be like him. Do you believe that? And if you do, then the next part is, do you believe he has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one? Do you really believe that the scriptures that we're reading today in 1 John, when you read through the Bible, that God has given us his understanding that if we would become like that athlete, that military person, if we truly believe in the one and dedicate ourselves to it, that we would have understanding of God's will, that we wouldn't be confused anymore. And as the Bible says, be tossed 
to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every new post that comes out, we run after it and believe what they posted and repost it without actually pausing to to think and have understanding. That's what we should be doing so that we're always pointing to the true one instead of all the false ones. But we live in a world that's trying to get us to point people in our social media, in our mouths, in our actions to all the false things that keep them trapped instead of pointing them to the true one that will set them free. And he goes on to say this, we are in the true one. Listen, John is writing his letter and he's looking at these people and he says, look, I know I've been harsh. I've talked about sin. I've talked about the consequences of sin, the death of sin. I mean, I've laid this out that there's a judgment coming. But then he says, but listen, if you know that Jesus has come and you are given to understanding that he is the true one and you want to understand that and you're going to give your life to grow in that and understand it more and read his word and pray and struggle and fight in the paradox of this life. He says, we are in the true one. That's a command. That is a statement. That is a, you can know that you're in the true one. And then he says, that is in his son, Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that was the plan from the beginning to show us our hearts. And here's the key. In verse 21, he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. You see, God gave his little child. There are people right now losing their children to this virus. People losing loved ones. And John writes here and he says, we're all like little children. You know what little children do? They use this word, mine, mine, it's mine, mine. And so often we can take good things and make them mine instead of looking at God and coming before him and saying, yours, 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 it's yours, that's yours too. Whether that's our children, our marriages, our careers, our money, our time. Instead of demanding mine, 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 which James says clearly that the reason we ask for mine and don't get it is because of our, we're going to spend it on our selfish desires. We want and don't have and we cause wars with the stuff that we're given for mine. But will you guard yourself from the idol of mine Will you stop creating idols for yourself, for me, for mine? And will you lean into God to understand that we're just little children that need to be guarded and that he tells us and trains us? In other words, God wants to raise us up from little children to teach us how to put on the armor of God. Like Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take on the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything, take your stand. Take your stand. You see, we're in a position where everyone's trying to get us to take a stand on all kinds of things right now. Can I just tell you to be very careful? Guard your heart 
from taking a stand on things that are worthless, idols? Would you take your stand on what is the true God and what is eternal life? And if you are, don't know him, know that there's a God who wants to call you his son, his daughter. God, he says he wants to, to know you. He wants to guard you and teach you how to guard others. He wants to show you the idols that will bring death so that you can see the life that can only come from him. And if you don't know him, you can begin that relationship today to know the true one so that we might know the true one because there's a lot of false ones out there. And if you need to begin that relationship today, just bow your head. Make the first prayer the will of God. When God says the first prayer he hears is when we say, God, not my will. I'm done with me. I'm a sinner. I need you. I am broken. I embrace your will, what you did for me, the promise of the Old Testament Messiah who came to save me, that Jesus, you gave your life. Your blood paid the price and covered my sin like the Old Testament and the altar that was covering the sin of God's people. I invite you to come into my life and and to change me, to, to adopt me so I can become your little child. Help me know how to guard myself. Thank you for your word as a gift to show me from this day forward, and I will commit myself to it. I pray that would be your prayer if you haven't prayed that prayer. And for those of us who have prayed that prayer, maybe it's time for us to be careful of our pride and Maybe it's time for us to maybe get back to being little children. Not irresponsible, but little children of faith, like Jesus said, anyone who doesn't come to me with with faith like a child. God, I I don't know what your will is. I'm not sure what tomorrow's gonna happen. And, And your word says that if you will, not demanding your will, if the Lord wills, I will. So Lord, I pray that would be our prayer and I pray that we would lean into your word and I pray that we would obey it because we have an understanding of who you are and it wouldn't be a burden to us. It would be a joy that we know the true one and a great desire of ours to tell others. Let me ask you, 1 John, so that. What's your so that? What are the so that's in your life? What are the things that that you say and you tell people and then you try to convince them and say, so that this and deep down inside, you know, you don't really believe that. Can I just tell you, there's a God who wants to make so clear what the so that is. And the so that is so that we can truly know him and glorify him with our lives and tell other people about how great it is to be a part of his family and his body of believers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We give you praise and glory for who you are. Thank you that we may know you, the true one, through what you've done. And I thank you that we may know that you are the Son of God and that you've come. And I thank you that you give us understanding like you have during this message so that we might know you, the true one. Never let us grow weary of that truth. Never let us grow weary of the relationship. Even in the midst of suffering, may we lean into you and realize that they're treating us like they treated the true one who came. 
and that that helps us in our suffering and trials to know you more, to know more the true one. We give you praise. Amen. Thanks for joining with us. Don't forget to check out any of our resources at fxchurch.com and any way that we can help you, please contact us. Don't be a stranger. Don't just listen to this message. If there's some way we can pray for you or or we can help you, we would love to do that and, and pray what God's will is for you. We encourage you to contact us, to fill out any forms that we have online. and Just know that God loves you. We're a church that wants to love people. Have a great week.